Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to The World in 10. It's your daily roundup of the biggest stories from across the world written by our correspondents and contributors at The Times of London. I'm Jenny Barsby. Coming up on today's edition, a chilling insight into one of Britain's worst sex offenders, why Putin is worried about the rise of the turbo patriot and should Taylor Swift be up there with Shakespeare? He is one of Britain's most prolific rapists, but perhaps the most alarming thing is he was also a cop. I'm talking now about David Carrick. For 17 years, he raped, humiliated and abused women from former girlfriends to fellow police officers to complete strangers. He did all of this while serving as a London Metropolitan Police Officer and, despite official complaints against him, was able to serve in an elite unit. He was finally caught in 2020. It's a case that has shocked the country. Last year, he was sentenced to life in prison for 48 counts of rape, 43 of which he pleaded guilty to. Now, a special report in the Sunday Times reveals that his first rape may actually have taken place when he was just 13 years old. Alongside this revelation, the article builds up a picture of a twisted man with journalist David Collins interviewing those who knew Carrick well, including one of his victims. The point of the piece for me was really getting to grips with uh, what turned him into the person that he became. You know, what made this monster? You know, we see in the tabloid headlines and we read about him being this kind of serial rapist, one of Britain's worst ever rapists, who was also a police officer. But I was interested in kind of what what made him be like that. Is there any clues in his childhood or kind of growing up, any pointers? And, um, you know, so I went right back to his roots. David Collins really does go far, far back in this article. He speaks to Carrick's mum. Surprisingly, she says that he used to defend her when her husband, who was actually his stepdad, would abuse her. The piece also talks about Carrick's life in the force, he was described by one colleague as proactive, happy to work the hours, dedicated. But as Collins explained to me, he had a split personality. In his day-to-day job, he was a good police officer, but he had a side to him that was extremely controlling, ex- extremely dominant, and he became more and more so uh, like that with the women he had relationships with. In fact, his offending, you can see in terms of the the offences that he does, they get more and more extreme as it as it goes through his career at the Met up until 2020. Then as you read on, we've got the shocking revelation I mentioned earlier that Carrick may have committed his first rape at just the age of 13. In fact, David Collins ends his piece by saying 
that the true extent of Carrick's crimes is still being explored and he believes there is more to come. One week ago, a bomb exploded in a cafe in St. Petersburg, killing the outspoken nationalist commentator Vladlan Tatarsky. He was a well-known military blogger, and according to a fascinating piece in the Times of London, one of a number of so-called turbo-patriots. The article's written by Mark Galliotti. He's a former advisor to the UK Foreign Office, and he explains what a turbo-patriot actually is. It's a term that's got some traction now in Russia to try and sort of find these people who are even more nationalist than Putin and the official government and who are beginning to actually turn on the government, actually are beginning to think of themselves as being, shall we say, patriotic to be anti-Putin. Compared with, say, the, the liberal opposition that we looked at in the past, people like Alexei Navalny, whose support base was essentially the metropolitan middle class. The turbo patriots, I mean, in part, it's young radicals who we'd almost regard as neo-fascists, but above all, their constituency is within the security forces. It's within the military, the intelligence agencies. In other words, to be blunt, the guys with guns, the guys on whom ultimately Putin is going to have to depend. Mark says he believes this is one reason why they've been given so much latitude, able to criticise the regime and the way it's been conducting the war with gusto and impunity. This at a time when even the mildest implied criticism has put liberal commentators behind bars. In his article, Mark writes that it appears to be becoming more patriotic to be anti-Putin, that Putin may have outstayed his welcome. It's even been suggested that Tatarsky may have been assassinated by order of the Kremlin. So how much of a threat then are these turbo-patriots? These are not people who, for example, had a problem with invading Ukraine. They have a problem with it being done so damn badly, mm. with the incompetence, the corruption and so forth that has been demonstrated. So these are people who have definitely fallen well out of love with the Putin project. Now, look, that doesn't mean to say they're going to bring Putin down themselves or anything like that. They're, they're far too few, far too divided for that at the moment. But it does mean that if Putin ever does get find himself in a real systemic crisis the people on whom he should be depending may not be willing to back him up. The goal of getting Putin out of power may be one with plenty of support across the world, but as Mark points out, if these turbo-patriots took over, they presumably unleash an even more brutal campaign against Ukraine than the one happening now. Formula One season, well, it's very much underway with the next Grand Prix taking place in Azerbaijan on the 30th of April. Yet, despite the fact that 40% of the Formula One audience is female, you won't be seeing a female driver lining up on the grid alongside Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. But could this be about to change? Well, this week, Craig Pollock, a Scotsman who managed the 1997 world champion Jacques Villeneuve, also went on to create the British-American racing team that ran in Formula One from 1999 to 2005, announced plans to launch Formula Equal. What is this, I hear you cry? Well, it's the first Formula One team to have a 50-50 split of men and women at every level of the organisation, from boardroom to driving seat. Pollock tells the Times that he hopes to have the team on the grid as early as 2026 and he's in discussion with the Gulf State about getting finance for his project. 
But with the setup costs for any new team going into Formula One estimated at being in the region of $1 billion, well, he's going to need every penny. William Shakespeare, Emily Bronte, William Wordsworth and Taylor Swift. Hmm. Okay, names you wouldn't think to put together, but Sir Jonathan Bate, who is an expert in the Bard and Wordsworth, thinks a pop star deserves to be considered alongside these giants of literature. My colleague Amy Gill spoke to Jonathan about this comparison. And Amy, why should Taylor Swift be considered a poet? Well, I think many Swifties out there, including Jonathan, would say, why not? From her first major hit, Love Story, she has made references to some of the greatest works in English literature. Love Story is obviously the most obvious one. You don't need to be an expert in Shakespeare to get the references she makes to Romeo and Juliet. But when sitting down with Jonathan, and he talks about this in his Sunday Times piece, there are more subtle references than many people think, particularly in her newer albums, Folklore and Evermore. The one that particularly struck me um, because um, as well as a Shakespeare scholar, I'm a scholar of the romantic poets of the late 18th, early 19th century, in particular a great lover of William Wordsworth. I used to have childhood holidays walking in the Lake District with my family and just love the Lake District and the way Wordsworth describes it in his poetry. And lo and behold, there on folklore, there's a song called The Lakes, which begins, is it romantic? Little clue to the romantic poets there. How all my elegies eulogize me. And then it goes on, take me to the lakes where all the poets went to die. And then later in the song, there's a reference to someone telling her, what are my words worth? And I thought, ah, yes, she's gone to the lakes. She's interested in Wordsworth. As someone who did English literature at university and is a fan of Taylor Swift, Jonathan's analysis is really interesting and just shows there is much more to the pop sensation than meets the eye. Now to read Jonathan's analysis of more of Taylor Swift's songs, go to the Sunday Times website where his piece is up now. Amy, thank you. And that's it for today's World in 10. We're back tomorrow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.